Hello and welcome to Unframed, conversations about the arts on CFCR 90.5 FM in Saskatoon and streaming live around the world at cfcr.ca. I'm your host, Michael Peterson. With me tonight is Clint Hunker. Clint is a professional instructor at the university as well as a painter and pastel artist and just completed a show at Art Placement along with Rita Cowley and Lorna Russell. Thank you for joining me today, Clint. Oh, you're welcome. So first of all, let's chat a bit about the show. It's coming down now, so we're talking at the tail end of it. But uh, how how was this past show for you? It was a, a bit of a, it was a group show as opposed to some of your others. So right, it was an interesting combination of artists historically because uh, the three of us, you know, we have uh, there's a lineage there, right? Right. So um, we're all artists who had worked outside. I would call us all modernist landscape painters. Okay. And, of course, Rita Cowley, who died in 2004, she was probably one of the best watercolorists in Canada. I think she was the best watercolorist of her generation in Canada. And she was very, very important to, as an instructor, to the art community in Saskatoon. Lorna Russell studied a little bit with her, Rita also worked at the uh, university, and Rita, uh, Lorna studied with her. Lorna Russell, a very well-known educator, again, who found the landscape more from the travels that she did with her father and Robert Hurley way back in the uh, 30s and 40s when Robert Hurley was attached to Dominion Labs. Okay and her father was a plant pathologist, so they were developing all sorts of disease-resistant plots all over the province. And they would go and they would travel out there, camp, and Hurley would do his watercolors. He was the second best watercolorist in Canada. (laughs) Behind. Right. Yes. Were they painting plein air then, I'm assuming, at this time? And you as well then? Or are you also working from photos in your practice? Uh, well, I wasn't born in the 30s and 40s. I know. Right? <laughs> I know. But are no, uh, I have worked uh, mostly plein air for the last okay. uh, 20 years, but I do a, a lot of work in the studio as well. Okay. So some combination, but... Yeah, but usually the work that I do out on site is finished on site. Okay. It follows more of the process or the tradition that Rita Cowley believed in and she had this philosophy that once you left the site the painting was finished you didn't mm-hmm. go back in and rework it and try and make it better Interesting. you accepted it for what it is with its flaws because it has more truth and more emotion attached to it it also gives you a place to stop because I know that's one of, that can be a challenging thing in terms of overworking a painting. As yeah, I think that having a place to stop when you are work, when I am working outside, a certain rhythm establishes, yeah. and it's in relation to the landscape and what I'm feeling about it, hmm. and so it's like a diving in to the painting, and. I pretty much know when the end of the painting has happened. It uh, it tells me, the painting tells me when to stop. I put one extra stroke on, and I've learned this, I put one extra stroke on, 
and I realized that I shouldn't have put that stroke on, that the painting ended the stroke before. Yeah. You come you have a sense then from of when to stop then. That's an interesting thing to mm. to work toward because that feels more intuitive than necessarily like necessarily formal. But I'm sure there's right. like that formal quality that's also informing that in terms of knowing when to stop. But mm-hmm. you're you're painting to some extent from intuition, from feel, from yeah. you say the rhythm of the landscape then. Yeah. I, I think of, I'm jumping ahead a bit here, but I'm thinking of some of your work at the university then in teaching and how sometimes I, and, and I don't have that much experience, but it was, it can be hard to teach the intuitive, you know, it can, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe in your experience you had, um, or how do you, I guess I w- would be a phrase. How do you teach the intuitive? How, how do you help students to understand that? As you say, understanding the rhythm of the land. I wouldn't go as far as looking towards the rhythm of the land okay. uh, with students, what I'm trying to get them in touch with is that eventually they start to develop a voice. And the voice has to rely on their own intuition, right? So I think that skill is very, very important, and I stress skill in first-year classes. But at a certain point, they've got to find their own voice and they've got to work through some of those brick walls that they're faced with when it comes to the point when they're using their own voice. Hmm. So intuitive work, I tell them to listen to the painting. Okay. And that's a pretty old standard phrase to throw out there. At the same time, I have a lot of, uh, like, each instructor develops their own projects, right? Certainly. And I have a lot of projects that are meant to uh, put them in the moment, to make them make choices that are sort of what I call barrier-breaking choices. So mm-hmm. they're relying on themselves and not relying on a script or a concept. Hmm. Yeah. It also then comes from practice or from studio time too, which is... Mm-hmm. Sometimes something that I find students don't always realize is it's not something you can come in, you know, sort of get instruction on and then be able to walk away with it. But if you're trying to get in touch with your own sensibilities, with your own voice, as you say, it it takes a lot of practice, a lot of work in the studio then. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The other side of that would be, well, I always give this example, you know, that when I was nine years old, I got a book, a little book for Christmas on how to draw a cocker spaniel puppy, the head of a cocker spaniel puppy. Okay. And it took you through all the different processes, like the stages from beginning to the end to draw this this puppy. And I point that that is a formula, point out that that is a formula to my students. And yet the skills that they are learning within that little exercise of drawing this puppy are some of the skills that you would learn in a painting or a drawing class. The point is that as an end result, you don't want everyone to look exactly the same. You don't want each drawing of that puppy to be the same drawing. Right. Yeah, so there's interpretation. And exposing students to all sorts of different ways of working is a good way to help them find their own voice and to keep that discourse individual. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. 
just going back a bit to your own career, then you've been showing and painting in Saskatoon for a number of years mm -hmm. and um, have established quite a reputation around the city. Uh, how has that process been for you then, someone who has, it's been a balance I know of your own practice showing at art placement and having commercial sales, but also then teaching. And I, mm -hmm. it's been, um, yeah, there's not too many people that have the, the number, of, the amount of experience, I guess I would say, in those areas that you do now here. So can you take us a bit of what that's been like establishing that? Well, it's always, you use the word balancing act, so it's right. always a balance between all of the different things in your life, right? Sure. But uh, at this point, like, I have to go into the studio every day. Okay. Or I don't feel good, right? So uh, that is taking precedence. And the teaching is uh, something I, I really love to teach, mm -hmm. and I keep it in its place. Okay. So that's, you know, specifically right now, for right now. I think uh, probably other people that you have talked to that are of my age will tell you that, you know, careers have, uh, they're circular. Okay. So when I started out showing at the shoestring gallery when I was 24 or whatever, you know, I was pretty hot stuff. Great. And I had lots of... Uh, work that went into the Mendel. I had my first Mendel exhibition when I was 30. But you know, by the time I was 40, all that was done. Hmm. And then the real shit hard work started. Because at a certain point, you're not the latest kid on the block anymore. And somebody else is feeding that trough. And so you've got to learn to really dig down and sort of cement the idea that the work is really the most important thing hmm. right and whether it gets exhibited or not it is irrelevant at some point it comes to a love of the work and a love of that mm -hmm. process mm -hmm. well then in and how long have you been teaching at the U of S for now? I've been teaching since 88 since 88 so okay. yeah and this has been a combination of both on-campus teaching and then teaching at off-campus sites. We were discussing yeah, yeah. places so. like Yorkton or Munster. Mm -hmm. I had the opportunity, as we were, I was mentioning, to teach one of those classes off-site, mm -hmm. and I, I very much enjoyed it. And it's, but do you find a difference then in the, both the process of teaching, but maybe the students too that you have when you're... Uh, it depends on the group. Okay. Uh, and it, it depends on, you know, the time frame. Of course. Right? So that, uh, you know, when I started teaching on campus, we had lots of older people that were taking classes sure. in with the, the first-year students, the second-year students. There, that doesn't happen very much anymore. Right. The classes are filled with uh, people who are 18 to 20. Uh, and to a certain extent, that, that happens uh, out at St. Pete's as well. Okay. But generally, there are, you're more likely to find a group of people that are really keen to learn in a small town, in a community college. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not in it for the degree. They're not, they don't have some of those pressures with going to school full-time. They're interested in art. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, my experience from that one limited experience was, I think there was a definitely a, a sense of 
of gratitude for mm -hmm. having the opportunity to take that class, there was no one in that class who took it for granted, which mm -hmm. I think can be the case just because you're dealing with a larger student body. You know, mm -hmm. when you're on campus, you have more variety there. It was just, it was nice to have that. But also there was, as you say, there was a maturity level there and students who were taking the class because they weren't going for the degree, they were really there to learn and to mm -hmm. engage. And mm -hmm. I, I certainly enjoyed my time there and, and could certainly empathize with why someone would continue to teach, even though there's certainly barriers like the distance that you're probably mm -hmm. traveling every week. Yeah. Because it's also a challenge, right, to get out there and get back. There's a lot of driving and travel on your end, I'm sure. Right. But, you know, distance education is really important in this province. Mm -hmm. Because we started out, you know, 60% of all the people in Saskatchewan were living, in, well, to begin with, 80% were all living in rural areas, 60% when I was born, and now it's reversed. Right. But uh, that, that bit of, those people that are out there, uh, they have just as much right to education as the people that are living in cities. It's just as important to them. And when it comes to art education, I think there would be something lost if we were talking about video education, you know, certainly. Because there mm. are, I, I have sat in on those classes where you're taking an English course and it's done by video and you can call in and there's mm -hmm. a certain level of engagement you can have even from distance. But mm -hmm. with art, it's really necessary to have the physical presence, isn't it? Yeah, it has to be hands-on. Yeah. So, yeah, it's nice to see that that those courses are still continuing on because I know it's the numbers it, it can be a challenge to from a number of angles but mm. like I say I saw the value there and so you've been teaching and continuing that on and then doing shows we were saying every two or three years you'll usually have a solo exhibition or art placement uh, at our placement yeah okay and you, you'd mentioned the shoestring gallery aka's predecessor was right, one yeah. of your starting points how has so I would imagine, too, then, this sort of as you were talking about that moving into the middle stages of your career as the institutions themselves were changing, there is less painting shown now in mm. some of these spaces than there was. So I would imagine the landscape has, for yourself, in terms of those opportunities, has changed, too, then. Just I would think so, yeah. The, um, the word landscape painting was a non-art form about five years ago. Hmm. In terms of the academic elite, yeah. no one believed in it. They didn't even recognize it. And I think things are starting to change now. I think that, you know, conceptualism has sort of run its course. And uh, people are starting to look back and think about, well, what is honest and what is authentic that's coming out of here? And what is attached to the place that we actually live in? And so I, I, I sense a bit of a shift yeah. happening. That's interesting when you mentioned that sort of connection to the land. I wonder if you could talk a bit about how that's developed through, how that develops through a painting or how you hope that might be visible to someone through a painting. I paint in a particular area, right? Right. And, okay, so why do I paint in that area that is just around Aberdeen? Why do I keep going back to that area? Mm -hmm. Well, part of it is just pragmatics. Okay. Part of it is uh, the fact that every time I go there, it's actually a different landscape. Right. But I'm also really interested in this other underlayer in painting. I, I really like to paint the land as it has become rather than 
land as an, as something idealized. Okay. As it sort of is in a lot of picturesque painting or in a, a lot of genre painting. So I I try to consciously include whatever is in front of me and think of it as form and color. Hmm. And also uh, are you from Saskatoon? Oh, yeah. Okay, so you're a prairie guy, yeah. and you know that a lot of people for the last hundred years that have moved to the prairies have encountered being alone in the landscape. Right, the when, prairie isolation. Yeah, yeah, like the settlers who came here, that's a primary experience that they had was sitting out there, whatever was around them, and being alone in it. And... Uh, I sort of feel like I'm somehow attaching myself back to that that very first experience. Hmm. So the aloneness is really important okay. in, uh, in my work. Hence part of the reason to go into the landscape and paint from the landscape then, since yeah. the, you're, you're yeah. putting yourself there by yourself? Yeah. Hmm. If a farmer discovers me, I'm usually on to the next place the next day <laughs> even if they're friendly <laughs> <laughs> so how long are you spending out in this landscape then when you're painting uh well i'll go out every day and i'll start at 11 i'll come back at four okay so you know you saw the show you know that the paintings are quite small right and that's the way that i've been working for the past while mm-hmm. i think of your pastel works and they are uh, not of a grand scale and Right. They're of a reasonable size. Are you trying to finish one on one outing then? Or? No, right now I'm not doing uh, pastel on land. Uh, sorry, out on site. Okay. Um, it's the oils that are on site then? Yeah. Okay. Pastels, they take years to finish. Do they? Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, they're really my studio work. Okay. And it, they just, they're never done. You know, like the old story about Degas taking paintings off the wall and trying to finish them, his pastels, because he thought something should be changed. Hmm. Well, that's the way it is. There's always something that comes to your mind later on as you've been sitting with this thing for a while that says, oh, yeah, that's not right. Hmm. That's, it's interesting. And so then when you're taking those oils out, though, is that sort of like a, a day to do an oil painting, or is it still going back yeah, to the same well, site repeatedly? Uh, if I'm lucky, I can do one okay. in a day, but most often it's two days, Okay. sometimes three to four. Mm. Yeah. That's an interesting comparison, though, between the oils where, as you were talking, sort of finding you have that sense of when to stop, right? Mm. Where with the pastels, it's one of those where you can keep working into that. Yeah. That's interesting. You have to sit and look at it for a long time. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I bring up the pastels because I remember when I was up in Melford, a, a couple of the students that we had in common were talking about the one year, because you've mostly taught painting in, mm-hmm. up there, mm-hmm. and the one year that you taught pastel. Right, yeah. And how they, they were just so happy that they had gotten to learn pastel from you. Mm. Uh, because they just they, they very much regra- regarded your ability within that area, but they they just talked about the way you spoke of pastel and I. Mm. It was it was interesting to hear, and I, I guess when I think of that too, your style is to be represented. There's a sense of representation, but also a sense of abstraction to me. Like you say, there's form. You're representing what's there, but it's a focus on form and color, 
and mm-hmm. not I, it is there but there is also a level of I mean you're not representing it purely photographically you know there's right there's a you're you're conscious of the way that you're constructing the the picture plane and the the aesthetic choices which mm-hmm. I, I always find an interesting step at least when I'm working with younger students when there's that because there's that focus on as you say ability and craft at the start which is necessary but then how do you now help them to move to making aesthetic choices mm-hmm. that inform it rather than it staying to the you know, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I guess I, I would say for yourself, well, is there a process that you're taking when you're choosing how to, how to semi like to move into some of those more abstract areas, or is that just sort of coming out of the? Pro- it just comes out of the landscape okay. and out of me. Okay. Yeah, it's it's that simple. Okay. Yeah, like uh, one of the things I do do that I think is. Uh, Fundamental. I was going to say interesting, but it's probably not <laughs> interesting to anybody but me. But uh, sort of basic to my starting place is that I lay down colors and I start to mix the colors that I see. Okay. And I'm really, really strict with myself about coming up with a chord where the sky in one place is a certain value and a certain hue. In another place, it's a certain value and a certain hue. I do the same thing for fields and land and trees. So I come up with this mix of um, colors that are really based on the landscape. And then from there, I begin to play. Hmm. So it's like the roots are established. And so if you think about uh, paintings that have a color chord, mm-hmm where the artist, let's say Pizarro, for instance, he chose, you know, five or six paints that he worked with. He mixed them together. He created this chord of colors, and that's what the painting was made out of. I don't tend to work that way. I tend to fall back upon what I'm seeing. Mm. I'm sticky about it, and then I play after that. And so it's really building from the landscape then and from what you're seeing. Yeah, I'm trusting the landscape to to lead me at the beginning. Interesting. And then making those aesthetic choices but using but based on the colors and the forms that are present in the landscape, not something yeah. separate from it. Yeah. And this goes back to when you were talking about the desire to represent it as it is, not in an idealized version. I right. Guess. Yeah. Well, and it also to me then when you're talking about the the picture plane in space when you're talking about the the color of the sky in one area being one color and in a different i know that's one of those things too that you look at with students is how do you represent space and how do you represent a movement through a piece how do you know that you're in one part of it and not in another or that something's foregrounded or backgrounded because mm-hmm. sometimes it can be like you know there's a there's a tree so it gets painted brown or there's a you know wheelbarrow that's red but there's no depth to it if you're not conscious to look closely and look at how it changes throughout the piece or how that Mm -hmm. sky changes even from like you say where the sun is or where different aspects are it's interesting yeah it's um it that conscious and it really comes from for yourself then too i assume from a real look and study of the land yeah when you're going back then to a space on a couple days is there I'm assuming there's a risk then that the weather may change or that the coloring may change. Oh, yeah, all the time. So you must have to almost make notes to yourself of what it is if you need to finish up on another day or... Uh, well, I pretty much just carry on. Do you? Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. So, you know, sometimes those bleached out fields are more bleached out and you just <laughs> accommodate. Okay. Interesting. Well, and then just to ask one other question about the pastels and when you're working over the course of time. So this is when you're taking more photo work and then working from photos in your studio? Sometimes, or, or I'll start them out and then... And then come back and work. Yeah. Okay. Because of just the length of time that yeah. they take. So they can still start in the field even though they're pastels? They can, okay. yeah. But that's, um, yeah, it's an, it's interesting to think of the difference in your time engagement with a piece from that, you mm-hmm. know, couple days to years and how that informs. Still trying to represent the landscape, obviously not over time, but at a certain time. But, yeah. yeah. It's more that I'm trying to uh, find a feeling in the pastels okay. that's true to the nature of the place. So quite often, a lot of things get changed. Uh, like one of the ones that are that is in the piece, or sir, one of the pieces in the show right now is um, on a piece of old paper that I got from Eli Bornstein huh. in the 80s. And it took me a while before I could use it. And I started it out on site, and then I started working on it in the studio, and it went okay. But I had a heck of a time with the foreground. Foreground, <laughs> the bottom four inches of that thing got lost, got removed four times. And wow. there's something totally different in there now than there was at the beginning. That hmm. sells a very, very flexible medium that way. Uh, people don't realize. They think of it as being delicate and, you know, hard to hang and all this sort of stuff. But it's, it's actually, uh, the colors are fantastic. And with pastel, I always think about ambiguous passages that are created from the shift of one color to the next over the surface. And they don't have to have anything to do with the structure, like you were talking about the spatial structure of the land. That isn't as important to me. I'm a fairly flat painter. Okay. So... I tend to see passages as moving across the picture plane, especially with the pastels. Interesting. And so then just forming that movement across, like as you say, and directing the eye through, you know, through the painting in that way. But right. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you for joining me, Clinton. This has been a, a nice conversation to have. So. Well, thanks for having me. That was fun. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you. And again, my name is Michael. This has been Unframed Conversations About the Arts on CFCR 90.5 FM. A reminder, you can always follow us on social media. We're Unframed Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you would like to listen to this episode or any of our past episodes, you can go to our website, unframedradio.com, or find our podcast on iTunes. Thank you and have a good evening.